Welcome back to Throwing Bagels. This is Chris Daglas, and this is episode four, part two, with Astros play-by-play announcer Robert Ford. This is a continuation of our conversation with Robert from yesterday, and we pick up the conversation with Robert's experiences growing up in the Bronx, and we start part two with asking Robert about his father and his influential background in the music industry. Uh, Robert, I, w- I really want to talk to you about your dad and his background. Um, I'm a big old school hip hop fan, right? 50 years of hip hop now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your dad and his history with, with hip hop, you know, writing for Billboard and writing music? Well, my dad, when he was working for Billboard, he um, started on the production side in the early 70s. But by the mid 70s, he was um, covering events and writing about concerts and writing about music for Billboard. And um, he uh, wrote a lot about disco. Um, I mean, he covered a lot of different acts, uh, but he wrote a lot about disco and this, you know, when disco was was big. Um, and, you know, you listen to a 70s radio station with my dad when he was alive. And um, he would have a story about pretty much every artist that came on the station. It could be Free Dog Night. It could be Donna Summer. It could, I mean, it didn't matter. But anyway, he was writing about disco, a lot about disco. And um, in some ways, what became hip hop kind of was an outgrowth of, of disco. So my dad started kind of covering that. And he wrote the first article ever about rap music in a mainstream publication about how um, record stores in the Bronx were reporting that uh, people were coming in and asking for ext- uh, extremely obscure records um, because they had long instrumentals like the incredible bongo band for instance um the patchy you know people were asking no one no one was buying the incredible incredible bongo band um but uh people you know djs hip-hop djs were because they you know there's long instrumentals in some of these songs and that's what they were looking for so that they could rap over them and uh, so my dad wrote that article um i believe it was 70 i think it was 78 1978 my dad uh became interested in the production side of things. And he kind of approached it being a writer as, well, maybe I could write some songs for some of these people. And he got to know a lot of the early um, hip hop people, you know, you think about uh, DJ Cool Herc, you think about DJ Hollywood, um, Eddie Chiba. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, the first, um, you know, Sugar Hill Gang, a lot of the first uh, uh, hip hop artists. Uh, long story short, uh, my dad got connected with Curtis Blow um, and his promoter, uh, a guy by the name of Russell Simmons, um, and, you know, through my dad's connections in the music industry, was able to help Curtis Blow land the first record deal on a major label for a rap artist with Mercury Records. And it started off as just a deal for a single, which became Christmas Rapping, which is my dad's idea because he had learned from a coworker of his who had written Christmas songs for Perry Como and was still getting money from those Christmas songs that he wrote for Perry Como 20 years prior, you know, Hey, this could be lucrative because every year, every Christmas, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to play this. And so it was his idea to come up with Christmas rapping. So that was the first song. Um, And then um, that led to an album deal when that did well. um, And that led to the breaks, which my dad wrote the entirety of pretty much. And, um, you know, and Curtis Blow kind of took off after that. And my dad wrote several of his other songs. Um, and that kind of led to or that led to a career for my dad on the production side of the music business. 
And, you know, he helped mentor Russell Simmons, wound up working for Russell Simmons. Uh, when Russell Simmons was running Def Jam Records in the 80s, my dad would pick me up from first grade, second grade, and take me uh, to Jeff Def Jam's offices down in uh, in the village and uh, on um, on Elizabeth Street. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea that the Beastie <laughs> Boys were sitting in my dad's office. I had no Amazing. idea that L.O. Cool Pool J was sitting, you know. I do remember Daryl McDaniel asking me uh, what grade I was in and, you know, you know, told me to do well in school from Run DMC. But, yeah, you know, and then I get older. My dad tells me, yeah, all these people were around and, you know, knew all these people. And I met them and, of course, don't remember uh, right. Yeah, I mean it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Pre cell phone, so you couldn't take videos of it, right. and stuff like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Were you? Did he get you in, into rap music? Are you a big rap music fan? He, my dad didn't. Um, I kind of did on my own. I mean, you know, growing up in the Bronx, growing up in New York City. Um, yeah, I just kind of, you know, kind of got into it on my own. Um, but you know, my dad and I, we would watch music videos together. You know, I'd watch MTV or BET or VH1 or whatever. And, you know, my dad had worked on a lot of music videos. Um, as a matter of fact, I was there. My dad helped worked on the uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince video for Parents Just So To Understand. And I actually oh remember God. being on the set for that <laughs> <Wow>. video. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was shot in a uh, in a studio in Astoria, Queens. Um, and I would have been about, uh, it's probably about seven. I think it was about seven years old. And I remember my dad picked me up from school. He'd say, yeah, we're going to Queens. I'm working on this video. Okay, whatever. Then my dad would do stuff. Okay, yeah, we're going to the recording studio. Whatever. Okay, okay. So, um, so yeah, I remember we get there, and they had amazing food. They, it was catered by Sylvia's, the great soul food restaurant in Harlem. Wow. One of the guys who was working on the video, I forget his connection. He was part of Sylvia's family. And so he arranged for this, for Sylvia to provide catering for it. So I was just crushing food. Absolutely crushing food. <laughs> My dad like talked to Will Smith like maybe 10 years later, and he said, Will Smith said to him, how's your son? Did he still eat that way? Um, because that's how much I was putting away as a seven-year-old on this video shoot for parents just don't understand. But I remember going in the main sound stage, which is, if you've seen the video, it's the, you know, where they have all the graffiti. It's the white walls, and they have all the graffiti. And I remember... To go to the bathroom, I had to go out of that soundstage and go into this other room around the corner and then down the hallway, and that's where the bathroom runs. Well, in this other room, it was a garage, basically. There was a, a metal gate that opened to the street, and it was closed. And in that room was a red sports car. And if you remember the video, parents just don't understand, oh, yeah. there's a scene in the yeah. video Will Smith is driving a red sports car. Well, that scene was shot in that room, in that car. Oh my God. They, I was I was not there for when they shot that. But <laughs> then I see the video years later. I'm like, oh, wait a second. That's 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 the bathroom's like right around the corner for where, where that steering <laughs> wheel is, you know. Um, that's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I kind of got into it on my own. But, yeah, my dad, you know, he had some knowledge of obviously a lot of knowledge of the music business and We'd watch music videos together and, you know, he would talk about songwriting. He, you know, we talked a lot about music and sports. Uh, those are the two biggest loves of my dad's life. And um, we probably talked more about sports, but we definitely talked a lot of music, um, you know, talked a lot about not just hip hop, but, you know, what, what makes what makes good songwriting? What, you know, what makes a good band? You know, things like that. Um, you know, you know, what makes a good music video? How this music video is they spend way too much money to do something that's really not going to resonate. You know, we would talk about all of those things. Do you prefer, do you prefer late seventies, eighties to 
you know, anything after that? I mean, I consider 90s in there also, but anything after the 90s? Better I than, mean, 90s hip hop. I mean, that's what I grew up with. I mean, 90s music mm-hmm. in general. I mean, you know, you talk about hip hop or alternative or even a lot of the pop, you know, that's just because that's when I came of age. That's, you know, that's always the music that that um, resonates with me the most. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, I love some of the early, early rap stuff. I love um, some of the more contemporary stuff. Um, you know, I, you know, I can get down with just about, you know, pretty much any kind of popular music genre, except, you know, country, just because I didn't grow up listening to country, but there's a lot of good country out there. And I think there's some great songwriting and I particularly like some of the older country, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. Nineties rap, nineties hip hop, nineties R and B, uh, you know, that's, you know, that, that resonates with me more than any other era of hip hop. Absolutely. So you went to, from, from the Bronx, you went to Syracuse University, right? We, we all, three of us went a little bit north of there because we just couldn't afford to go to Syracuse University. So we decided <laughs> to go north, but I mean, uh, I barely could either. And if my dad had <laughs> Christmas wrapping in the bricks, I definitely wouldn't have been able to go there. You would have been on Swego with us. You would have been there the same probably, time we were. Probably. <laughs> um, but give us an, your experience at, at Syracuse. Like you did you start, you know, broadcasting right away when you were there? What did you, what, what kind of broadcasting did you, did you do while you were there? Did you do game, any basketball games, football games, anything else? So Syracuse is well known, you know, the Newhouse School of Communications and WAER, the uh, mm-hmm. I mean, basically student run um, campus radio station that uh, broadcast the student broadcast of uh, Syracuse men's basketball, men's lacrosse and, and football. And, you know, I mean, you look at the list of sports broadcasters who've come out of Syracuse and almost every single one of them worked at WAER. Um, I did not. And the reason for that is I got to Syracuse. I was in the broadcast journalism program. I knew I wanted to do something in sports. I wasn't exactly sure what. I thought maybe like a sports anchor. That was my first thought. As I kind of got deeper into the program, I realized, no, I think play-by-play is really what I want to do. Um, and so that I didn't really come to that realization until the latter part of my sophomore year at Syracuse. Well, by then, you know, one of the the good things and the bad things about the Syracuse, uh, broadcast journalism program is it's super competitive. So because it's so competitive, if you want to broadcast games on WAER as a student, um, you're probably not going to get to do it until you're an upperclassman. And you basically have to walk in the door of WAR at the beginning of your freshman year and say, I want to do play-by-play. And then you wind up on a whole progression. You wind up as a studio producer and a talk show host, and you do stats, and then you kind of work your way up to, you know, getting the call, hopefully, a handful of games, you know, your junior and senior year. Well, I knew that it was too late for me to do that. I knew if I started at WAR as a sophomore, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to go down that path. I probably wouldn't get to call in the game. So... I had to be creative. I would sit in the rafters of uh, the Dome at Syracuse and broadcast uh, Syracuse football and basketball games into a tape recorder. I um, uh, wound up uh, working for the minor league hockey team in Syracuse, the Syracuse Crunch, doing ringside reporting my senior year there. Um, I knew nothing. I literally brought, bought a copy of Hockey for Dummies when I started because that's how little I knew about hockey. I just didn't grow up following it, but I loved it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I... I don't follow hockey closely these days, but man, I, it's such a fun sport to watch, particularly live. And, 
you know, I usually I usually try to check in during the playoffs and catch as much of the playoffs as I can, regardless of who's in it. And uh, I also worked at a little radio station in Fulton, New York, which is west of Syracuse, a little town calling high school football for WZZZ AM. Um, <laughs> and, we, uh, uh, Robert, that that was our, our professor at Oswego owned that station. Uh, uh, Peter is that Hun, right? Peter Hun was okay. the owner. Peter Hun. Yeah. At the time. So, so I worked with a guy. There was a guy there at WZZZ. I mean, you, you meet so many characters in this business. Mm-hmm. This guy by the name of Ed Gonser. And I had gotten to know Ed because he was also a stringer for the Associated Press. He would cover uh, Syracuse basketball and um, the minor league hockey team and Syracuse Chiefs baseball team and write stories for the AP, um, for, the, for the AP wires. Um, so I had gotten to know Ed because um, uh, being doing Syracuse crunch stuff and um, he asked me if I would do some high school football with him I was like okay um, the pay was zero dollars Ed would bring you a bottle of water and make a big deal about it because he wasn't paying you it was almost like here's your bottle of water like I, I made I went out and got this for you just especially for you this very special bottle I mean it was I mean, I'm exaggerating yeah. a little bit, but not by much. Uh, and so I wound up. But I mean, the great thing about Ed was I did I did one game with him, and I think he let me call a a quarter or two quarters of the game. I can't remember. And I did color with him for the rest. But after I did that one game with him, it trusted me. And so the football team, uh, the Fulton High School Red Raiders, they um, wound up going on a very surprising and unexpected run deep into the state tournament. And they didn't make it to the championship game, but they got, I think, to the semifinals, if I remember correctly. Um, and they play like the late, the latter rounds of the state football playoffs, as you guys may know, at the Carrier Dome, then known as the Carrier Dome on the campus of Syracuse University. So their next playoff game was going to be at Syracuse. And Ed said to me, I want you to do the game. And again, wasn't paying me, but he's like, I want you to do the game. Pick someone to be your color commentator, and you can give them some play-by-play if you want, and pick someone to do stats for you. So I picked a couple of my friends, and we did the game together. And so I, my my one friend Joe Babick, he was um, he and I, he was my broadcast partner, and we each did two quarters. I think I did, I think he, I think I did the first and the third quarter, and he did the second and the fourth quarter, something like that, a play-by-play, and then whoever wasn't doing play-by-play did color, and then my friend Howie Balaban. Um, he was the, he was our stats guy and he did the halftime show because he had all the stats. So who else would do the halftime show? Um, halftime show was basically him reading the stats. So yeah, we had a blast. It was a lot of fun. Um, and if you're not making any money or a little money, you better be having fun. And we certainly were. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things I did, uh, at Syracuse just to, you know, just to try and get reps and, and figure out, you know, if this is what I wanted to do, if I was any good at it. Uh, did you get your awesome. friends the water? Did you get your friends water bottles? No, I think Ed <laughs> gave me water for everybody. Oh, cool. Um, all right, good. It wasn't in my budget at all um, <laughs> to, to, to buy anybody water, um, as you would expect for, for, for most college students. After you graduated from Syracuse University, you did an interview with Tobias Amstutz of the Science Survey in May 1st, 2021. I just want to read the the very first sentence of this article. It said, Robert Ford had just graduated and was working his first job as an assistant sports writer 
reporter at New York City Bureau of a Japanese newspaper called Yumiri Shimbun on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Tell us about your experience during that time. So I graduated from Syracuse May of 2001. Mother's Day is when Syracuse traditionally has their graduation. And so I, so I graduated, you know, didn't have a job lined up as most graduates don't. And um, yeah, so I, that Sunday or, you know, that next week in the New York Times uh, classifieds, I, you know, started scouring the ads and found an ad for the sports reporter job that, you know, and I wound up getting it and started uh, uh, in June and um or in yeah or in july and um uh yeah so i assisted the main japanese sports writer and uh or the main sports writer who was japanese and um you know got to cover a lot of different events with him and also secure credentials for him for events he was covering and things like that it's basically like his 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 gopher his runner but i got to cover 2001 world series got to cover the, which was the yankees losing to the diamondbacks got to cover the um uh, the Williams sisters playing in a Grand Slam tournament against each other for the first time in the U.S. Open that year. Um, got to do a lot of cool stuff. Anyway, September 11th was a Tuesday. I show up at work uh, at 9 o'clock. Uh, one of us had to be there at 9 every day. Everybody else would be there at 9.30. And the person who was there early was supposed to check the AP wires, which were on the computer in the back of the office, in a back room in the office. And basically the whole idea was if there's anything going on, you know, call the bureau chief and let them know. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, there was nothing. So I walk in. And so, again, um, as those students of history know, first plane hit the World Trade Center a little bit before 9 Eastern time. So I show up at 9. The television is already on. And it says on TV, plane hits World Trade Center. And I say, okay, well, well, that's weird. And so I go back and look at the wires and the wires are treating it like it's an accident. It mentioned how a plane had once crashed in the Empire State Building back in, I think, the 1940s or something like that. You know, so I'm going through the wire. So on the AP wire, they when there was breaking news, you'd get a flashing alert on the wire. It'd be flashing in red and white. There's breaking news. And you'd click on it and find out what was going on. So this red and white breaking news thing starts flashing on it. So I click on it. And it says a second plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I'm like, huh? So I come out of the office because the office where the office was where the AP wires were, you couldn't see the TV. So I come out, look at the TV, and now both towers are on fire. And I'm like, what is going on? And I remember making a call to the bureau chief and leaving a message with her. But it seemed like maybe, you know, it felt like maybe a minute after that, everybody was in the office and everybody was springing to action. And I mean, it was such a crazy time because, you know, you, you start to realize, like, wait, we're being attacked. And... No one really knows what's going on. No one really knows what's happening. I can still remember how I, you know, felt when the first tower collapsed and I saw it on television. I mean, it felt like it felt like all the blood was leaving my body. Like, I mean, it was just like, I mean, you know, and there were several times that day when I was like, is this is this really happening? Like, is this like it, it felt like a movie that entire day. And so, you know, we're making phone calls to hospitals and trying to find out and no one knows anything you can't get through to anybody and even if you do no one has any information because it was just chaos and um we had a reporter one of the other american reporters his name was david and he lived in battery park city if memory serves and he was on his way to work by you know by the world trade center 
sees the first plane hit. David was a really good reporter. He realized, hey, something's going on here. Let me stick around and see what's happening. And so he stuck around and saw everything, you know, up close. You know, both planes hit, both towers collapse. He's doing interviews. He's talking to people. He had a camera with him back in the days of 35 millimeter cameras. He was taking a bunch of pictures, you know, and he's calling back. We had cell phone. That was the first cell phone I ever had was from that job in 2001. Wow. So, so, I mean, it would lose battery with like, you know, 20 minutes, but he was calling, you know, back to the, to the bureau, you know, letting them know what's going on. And he's like, yeah, I have, I've used all my film, you know, and he wanted to get it back to the bureau so that they could, you know, process it and see if they would use any of these pictures in, in the Yamiuri Shimbun. But if you recall, they closed off lower Manhattan below, um, below 14th Street for vehicles, except emergency vehicles, and below, I believe, I forget, um, I think it might have been, uh, it was lower than that anyway in Manhattan where they cut it off to pedestrians unless you could show ID showing that you lived in lower Manhattan. And so David wanted to get us these pictures, but he doesn't want to leave because if he leaves, he may never be able to get back down there. So um, the bureau chief tells me, David has film. We need it. Talk to him and figure out how you can get it from him. So we go, okay. So I call David and he's like, yeah. He's like, I have this film. I think he had two rolls of film. And uh, he's like, I'm going to give it to this kid. It's like a teenager. And he's like, I've got 40 bucks on me. That's all I have. I'm going to give him the film and the 40 bucks and hopefully he gets it to you. And so he's like, so we come up with this plan. It's like, okay, I'm going to get as far south in Manhattan as I can get and then figure out a way to meet this kid. So I get on the subway uh, and the bureau was in Rockefeller Center right there. The Associated Press building is now the Bank of America building in Rockefeller Center, but it's just north, uh, what would that be? Um, uh, northwest of the, of the skating rink in Rockefeller Center. So get on the subway uh, and the subway, I mean, it was just nonstop announcements in the, on the subway platform because all the subways were being rerouted in Manhattan, as you can imagine, to avoid lower Manhattan. So I get on the train, the furthest south I can get is West 4th Street Station. I get off in the village, come outside, and I've been, I love the village. Village is maybe my favorite neighborhood in New York City. Been there many times, grew up going there a lot as a kid. You know, I'm used to coming out of the West 4th Street Station. You have all the hustle and bustle. You're right there on 6th Avenue. You got cars whizzing by. You got people coming down the street. I come out, you can hear a pin drop. There are no cars because cars have been cut off below 14th Street. And people were standing in the middle of the street. And everyone was silent. You could hear people sobbing. But everybody was silent. So I get off the subway. And it's like eerie. And then I get into the street and I realize everybody is looking. You can see the plumes of smoke from the towers. They had collapsed at this point. You can see the plumes of smoke. And this is the first time I'd seen it in person. Because um, I couldn't see it from Rockefeller Center. It's the first time I'd seen it in person. And so like, I remember stopping there for a minute and just like, you know, it was like it, it hit you. Like, oh, like it, it felt more real then to me. So anyway, I walk all the way over to the west side by the uh, Hudson River and um, on 4th Street or 3rd Street, I forget, at the corner uh, right there along the West Side Highway was a gentleman's club. And it was closed, but it was painted pink. And so I thought to myself, this is a good landmark. 
because it's painted pink. No one's going to miss this. So I call David on my cell phone and I say, hey, I'm at the corner of blah, 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 blah. I'm standing at, you know, this strip club, whatever. And uh, um, so he's like, all right, I'm going to give the money to this kid. His name is Billy or whatever. I don't remember now. And he, he told me what he was wearing and I told him what I was wearing. And so it was a leap of faith. And maybe about, I was standing there maybe 45 minutes and this kid shows up with the film and hands me the film. And I go back to the, uh, I go back to uh, the bureau with the, with the film. Incredible. Wow. Absolutely incredible. That's one hell of a story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember I was uh, working at WFAN at the time. That was one of my days off. So I would, I was, I woke up, my brother woke me up and said, Hey, you have to turn the TV on and watch yeah. what's going on. And, the day after I, I, I drove into Queens, uh, and we, I, I mean, I'm sure you could too. I mean, I could smell it from there when I parked the car and yep. get out to walk to the, smell it in the Bronx easily. Yeah. Yeah. And just all, all day, the day after taking phone calls at the station from people who hadn't heard from their relatives yet. Um, you know, people just, just angry at, at what transpired. Uh, it was, it, it was heartbreaking. It's still heartbreaking to this day. It's really, uh, honestly, it's really left a mark on all of us. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, one of the lasting memories for me, you know, post nine 11, I always tell people, I was glad that I was there to see New York city try to heal and recover after that, because mm -hmm. it was, um, it was incredibly sobering and, and you're right. The city, you know, was never quite the same after that. Um, but yeah, I remember, walking you'd walk down by times square or any busy area of new york and you'd see um walls filled with flyers with pictures of people and phone numbers if you've seen this person contact them and you know every now and again you'd walk by and somebody would be putting up a flyer and you know they might be talking to someone yeah that's my cousin like man he'd love this weather right now you know he's a big yankee fan you think they go all the way this year you know like the thing that was so heartbreaking was you knew and they knew this person was gone, probably, but they're hoping, and so were you, against all hopes that, hey, maybe maybe this person made it out. But, I mean, that was just heartbreaking, knowing that there were all these people looking for friends and loved ones that, you know, they, 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 they were gone. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'll always remember that. I'll also always remember being at Game 3 of the World Series in 2001 when uh, President George W. Bush threw out the first pitch, um, and that was – that is one of the coolest moments I've ever experienced at a game, without a doubt. Um, and, you know, regardless of how you feel about what happened after 9-11, regardless of how you feel about President Bush, any of that, I mean, that was, that was just electric. That was such a cool moment. And, um, yeah, it's something I'll, I'll never forget. Right. Fired a perfect strike from the mound. He said, I am not, I am throwing this from the rubber. Uh, you cannot. And you know who he threw it to was to Todd Green, who was the Yankees' backup catcher. And I later learned this story. Todd Green is a scout now, and um, he's good friends with my broadcast partner with the Astros, Steve Sparks, pitched in the big leagues for parts of nine seasons. And he and Todd Green were teammates uh, with the um, with the Angels. So they, they know each other pretty well. So Todd Green comes up to the booth one day before a game uh, to catch up with Sparky. And, and, you know, I get to meet him, everything. Really nice guy. And we started talking about that story. And he was saying that um, they originally wanted Roger Clemens to catch the first pitch because he's a fellow, fellow Texan and all that. 
Um, but Roger, I think he was starting that game. I can't remember for sure. But whatever whatever it was, they couldn't get Roger Clemens there in time. But Todd Green was there, and he had a catcher's mitt. So it's like, hey, go on and catch the president. So that's how Todd Green, nobody remembers that. Uh, and, you know, it's not, you know, you think about all the, the stars on that Yankees team in, 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 in 2001, and it was Todd Green, who, who a lot of people may not even remember played for the Yankees, who caught the first pitch. Oh, exactly. Uh, and so from from your your job at the newspaper, the, the Shinbun, uh, you proceed and eventually you land your first job in, in minor league broadcast, in uh, minor league baseball. So t- take us through, how did you get, how did you break into the business? So I would, that year that I graduated from college and was working at the Yamaguri Shinbun, I would go sit in the stands at Shea Stadium and Yankee Stadium and bring my tape recorder and call baseball games into my tape recorder. Uh, I was trying to make a demo uh, that I could, um, you know, get to minor league baseball teams uh, and hope that one of them hired me to be their broadcaster. Um, so, yeah, uh, most of my demo wound up being from a Yankees-Red Sox game um, in June of 2001 uh, that Pedro Martinez started, who is still my all-time favorite pitcher to watch. Um, I saw Pedro pitch maybe six or seven times in person at Yankee Stadium um, when he was pitching for Boston. But anyway, um, yeah, and I, you know, you know, would sit up in the upper deck. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in that Yankees-Red Sox game, I mean, it was Yankees-Red Sox. It was elbow to elbow. And I'm there with my tape recorder on my left thigh, my scorebook on my notes on my right thigh, and, yeah, calling the game. And I didn't realize till afterwards there was one moment where I mentioned it was a key moment in the game, and I mentioned something about, you know, the crowd's really getting getting loud. And when I listened back to the tape, I could hear a fan near me saying, he said we're getting loud, let's get loud. And so... <laughs> um, so, yeah. So anyway, so I put together what I thought sounded best from those demos that I did and or those games that I called into my tape recorder, made a demo tape and it was a cassette tape back in those days. And I went to the baseball winter meetings, which were in Boston in December of 2001. And um, yeah, I went there and there's a, a big job fair that's part of it or was at the time, uh, mostly with jobs in minor league baseball. Most of the jobs are not in broadcasting. There were you know, maybe six or seven in broadcasting. I applied for all of them. Uh, the Yakima Bears in Washington State, short season Northwest League, they interviewed me at the winter meetings. Their general manager and their owner interviewed me and wound up hiring me the next day before the winter meetings were over for the 2002 Yakima Bears season. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I got my first job with the demo tape I made sitting in the stands at, at, at Mets and Yankees games in New York. And from from Yakima, you wind up eventually with with the Binghamton Mets. I mean, what now? Now you're thinking I get a job calling Double A baseball for the Mets um, team I rooted for growing up. I mean, what, what kind of a moment was that for you? I mean, well, it was a big moment in my career for a few reasons. One of them being, you know, so I, I'm in Yakima for a year. I then wind up going to Kalamazoo, Michigan, for two years, calling minor league baseball, working for a radio station group. Got to do high school and small college basketball and football there and also did radio news anchoring and reporting and all sorts of stuff and had, had a lot of fun there. Did that for two years and then went to double A. And back then the team that I called games for in Kalamazoo, the Kalamazoo Kings, they were in the frontier league, which is independent ball. Back then independent ball was almost seen like as like this, uh, you know, this, this, this outlaw sort of thing, 
you didn't see many people make their way from independent ball to working and affiliated minor league baseball. Mm -hmm. And you really didn't see very many people, if anyone, go from independent ball to working at double A, uh, two steps from the big leagues. So that was a big deal at the time, certainly for me and even, you know, to a lot of people in the industry, like, hey, who is this guy? Like he he went from Kalamazoo, Michigan, the independent ball to double A Eastern League, Binghamton. How did he do that? You know, and, um, so that was that was really cool. It was also great to be closer to home. I was a three hour drive from my mom's in the Bronx um, from Binghamton. So that was fantastic. Um, and yeah, it was a Mets affiliate. That was cool, too. Um, although, you know, you get so involved with your team when you're broadcasting that, I mean, I kind of paid attention to the Mets and also obviously things that would happen with the Mets might impact Binghamton and vice versa. But I was more locked in on the Binghamton Mets than I was on the New York Mets for sure. Uh, but yeah, that was a huge moment in my career. It was a great four years being in Binghamton. Um, that's, you know, where my daughter was born. That's where I met my ex-wife who was a student, a grad student at Binghamton University you know, still have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends from every place I've lived, but uh, particularly from Binghamton. And um, yeah, it's it was uh, it was a, a big moment in my career and a great place to be for four years. You also did quite a, a bit of work with the Bearcats, right? While you were up in Binghamton. Yeah, Binghamton uh, Bearcats women's basketball radio broadcaster for for four years and um, would fill in on the men's basketball games as well. Um, so yeah, I got I got to do a lot of stuff there and. That was that was a lot of fun, also. And I imagine you you crossed paths with the uh, the famous Roger Neal on on a few times. A legend! What what a great guy <laughs> and what a great broadcaster. Roger Neal, for those who don't know, he's done Binghamton Bearcats men's basketball for, gosh, probably about thirty years now, and um, can't can't ask for a nicer human. And he's a big reason why I got the Binghamton women's basketball job because he basically told the athletic department they had an opening. The guy who had been doing it was a sports reporter in town on one of the TV stations, he got promoted to sports director. So now he wouldn't have time to travel with the women's team. And so Roger Neal, I remember he called me and he said, Hey, um, cause I didn't even know that they had an opening. He's like, Hey, they have an opening. I told them they need to hire you. And so, okay. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it was, I got interviewed, but it was really more just to make sure I wasn't a serial killer. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was, and you know, before the interview was over, the associate life director at the time was like, yeah, you, you're hired. Like, it was like, it was, there wasn't even, he's like, you, you, it's your job. It's okay. This is, this is, you know, the schedule will, you know, this is media day. This is what we're doing. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that, yeah, that wound up being, that wound up being great. And then later you move on to uh, Kansas City, right? And you're doing the pre and post game. For, for the Royals, how did you how did you end up there? And you you obviously wanted to be a play by play guy, right? And you're doing the pre and post, right? Explain how you kind of and then you started doing your own again your own broadcasts, right, from the booth. Right. So my last couple of years in Binghamton, I started sending my demo now on CD. Technology has advanced uh, to major league baseball teams i had all the media guides and so in each team's media guide they would list a director of broadcasting or someone in charge of broadcasting and so i sent out my demo cd and resume to every single well not every single but just about every major league team at least 28 of the 30 teams i don't think i sent one to toronto because you know it was canada and the postage was more and yeah i didn't have that a whole lot of money back then 
Um, but uh, yeah, and I would send with with a demo CD with my resume and a cover letter and saying, um, you know, I'm radio broadcaster with Bingham to Mets. I'm looking eventually to get a major league baseball play by play job. You know, even if you don't have an opening, I, you know, I'd love for you to consider me if you ever have a need for a fill in broadcaster. Um, and I would always, you know, and I also appreciate any feedback you can give me on my demo. Um, mostly what I got back from the teams that responded at all were form letters that, hey, all of our positions are filled, sort of things. All those letters I still have, by the way. And, um, but there were a handful of people who reached out to me and gave me really good feedback. The one who was the most significant this guy by the name of Rob Brooks, who still is the director of broadcasting for the Philadelphia Phillies. Mm-hmm. And he called me one day. Um, I was actually in Syracuse, New York with um, my now ex-wife. We weren't married at the time. And we had gone up to Syracuse. Again, this is how poor we were. We had gone up to Syracuse from Binghamton for a Valentine's Day weekend, for a romantic weekend together. Uh, and so... <laughs> We were in Syracuse. We had just gotten to the hotel. My phone rings. I pick it up, and it's Rob Brooks, who I had never met or talked to before. And we we talked for an hour about my demo. And you know, my ex wife, to her credit, was extremely patient. And you know, we still had a, a wonderful night and dinner and all that. But yeah, I, I took this phone call, and so basically, the message that I got from Rob and others who actually listened to my demo was. You know, we think you're really good. You just need more reps. You're not quite major league ready. It was more or less the message I got. And so I was kind of getting a little, I felt I was getting stagnant in Binghamton. I loved what I was doing. I loved calling games, but I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I was substitute teaching in the baseball off seasons around my basketball schedule. I was doing, you know, whatever I could to, to try and make ends meet. And, you know, that, that can get tiresome, even though I was still loving what I was doing broadcasting wise, but I wanted, I was trying, I was like, I want to put myself in the best position to get a major league baseball play-by-play job. So I wind up uh, finding out that uh, the program director that I had worked with in Kalamazoo and had called games with was about to become the program director for the Royals flagship station in Kansas city. Um, and I found this out basically by accident because I called him. His name's Ryan McGuire. I called him because um, I wanted to pick his brain about a few things. And we start talking and he tells me he's going to take this job in Kansas City. At that point, no one knew because the guy he was replacing hadn't been told yet he was being let go. And he had told me, hey, don't say anything yet because it's not. no one's going to know till Monday. It was like Wednesday. No one's going to know till Monday. Like, okay. So he said to me, he was like, um, I might have something for you. Because my thought was, Maybe if I get into a big league market and be around a big league team, that might give me a better chance of getting a big league play-by-play job because, you know, I was very much a student of broadcasting and broadcasters and their career paths. And I realized a lot of broadcasters, that's what, that's what happened. They were in the market, you know, kind of worked their way up and there was an opening and, and the team already was familiar with them and all of those things. So that was kind of, that was what I was thinking. And so, I, yeah, I take this shot in Kansas City. Uh, for the Royals flagship station as the Royals reporter and doing a pregame show and a postgame call-in show uh, before and after every Royals game. I was at all the home games, watched the road games from the studio in Kansas City, didn't travel with the team. Um, And uh, yeah, it was very tough not to do baseball play-by-play every day for four years, but I would always watch the games at home in a broadcasting booth, an empty broadcast booth at, at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. And I, every 
you know, every year, um, a handful of games, I'd bring a recorder and record my play-by-play of the game into this recorder so that I'd always have fresh demo material. And that's what I use to get the Astros job. It's funny because uh, when you mentioned that you've you've gone to multiple places just to get reps to, to talk into a, a tape recorder, and I remember uh, reading one of Marv Albert's uh, um, autobiographies, and he would do the same thing. He would, except he was lugging a reel-to-reel tape deck with him yeah. on the subway to Madison Square Garden or to Shea Stadium or wherever to do games. I'd imagine it was a little bit easier uh, for, for you to, to do that. <laughs> yeah, so my Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium demos that got me my first broadcasting job in baseball were tape recorder with a microphone yeah. attached. Uh, the ones that I had in Kansas City, that was a digital recorder. Um, and so, yeah, so things, you know, and now, I mean, you know, I get people emailing me their demos for, for me to critique them. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's great how much technology has advanced, but those kids will never know how hard it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I had to carry, I had to carry that tape recorder uphill both ways. By That's the way. right. Yeah. yeah. In five feet of snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In June. <laughs> So I, I think next week, right, would be the 10th anniversary of your, your introductory press conference with the Astros. I think, uh, was yes, it, it was February 13th, 20, 2013. Yeah, it was yeah. Valentine's. It was the day before Valentine's Day. That's how I, mm-hmm. it's partly how I always remember the date. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the butterflies from that day? Well, um, Five minutes before we were introduced as the new Astros radio team, I met my broadcast partner, Steve Sparks, for the first time. We, we didn't know each other. We hadn't spoken. Um, and it's wound up being a great marriage. Uh, but, yeah, we, you know, we meet up, and, and then they bring us downstairs. And, and it was also because they had revamped the television broadcast as well. And so they brought all of us uh, to this press conference room at Minute Maid Park. It wasn't a formal press conference. Like, we weren't sitting behind a podium or anything like that. But uh, they had TV reporters there with cameras and stuff and tape recorders and they were interviewing us about you know being you know broadcasters and you know me obviously about you know being new to town because i was the only one who didn't have any previous connection to the astros um so you know i was really the new kid on the block in, in every sense of the word um so yeah it was um I don't remember butterflies because at that point i had the job so you know i knew i wasn't going to say sure. anything that was going to at that point you know, make them take it away from me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a lot of excitement and also a lot of, uh, I felt like I had a lot of work to do because I had to learn the Astros. I had to learn, you know, the major leagues or, you know, the teams, all the teams that were playing. I mean, I had been doing pre and post for Kansas city, but you know, that, you know, I wasn't, you know, that's a lot different. I wasn't, you know, keeping notes on other players and other teams and things like that. So I had to, I had to get all that going. You, and those teams were were not good, right. right? And and they slowly started to get better as you yeah. were in your first couple of years. Yeah, my first year. You know, it's funny because I've had people ask me, you know, does the team's performance affect your employment? And I'm like, well, the first year I covered the Astros, they lost 111 games, the most in team history, <laughs> and they brought me back the next year. So I don't I don't think that's how that works. Um, at least it hasn't in my case to this point, thankfully. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think at the time it seemed very slow, but when you look back on it, I mean, my third year, they're in the playoffs, 2015. Um, but yeah, they lost 111 games in 2013, lost 
um, 92 games in 2014, and that was a huge improvement. Um, I remember the front office was ecstatic. The Astros that year ended the season at City Field against the Mets, and they won the first game of that series on Friday night and lost the last two games to the Mets and of that of that season. Um, that was Bobby Abreu's last game, that, that final game of that regular season uh, playing for the Mets. Um, but uh, I remember the front office being ecstatic Saturday when I was at the ballpark because their internal projections had projected 70 wins and they hit the mark and they wound up, they wound up being it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, that's how bad things were when you're excited about winning 70 games. Uh, but and then 2015, all of a sudden, you know, new manager and, you know, AJ Hinch and, you know, Carlos Correa comes up and Lance McCullers Jr. comes up and, um, you know, the, they had made some moves and that, you know, that previous offseason and they kind of surprised everyone and made it to the playoffs. And you go from having never called a playoff game in your in your career to that point to calling now 92 of them more more than anyone else in the broadcasting in business. So that's that. I mean, that's just awesome. Yeah, I mean. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, me and, and Steve Sparks, we talk about it all the time. Like, can you believe this, that we've called, you know, whatever the number of playoff game it is at that time? Like, you know, we were talking about that throughout this this postseason run in 2022. Like, can you believe this is our 89th postseason game? Like, it's just, it's amazing. That's one reason I love doing baseball on the radio more so than on TV is because you get to call these postseason games. And these are the games people remember. These are the calls people remember because – um, you know, you're the only local broadcast happening. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly fortunate. I think, I mean, obviously it's been a lot of fun. It's fun when they win. It's fun when, even when they don't win because it's the postseason. I mean, everyone who's ever associated with baseball, this is your dream. Whether you're a fan, whether you're a player, whether you're a broadcaster, whether you're the athletic trainer, is to be part of a team that goes to the playoffs, part of a team that gets to the World Series, wins the World Series. That's what everybody dreams of is in the baseball. Um, and the fact that I've been fortunate enough to be with an organization that's gone to the league championship series six years in a row and has played in four world series. And, you know, in the time that I've been there, I mean, it's, and one, two of them, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I if you had told me this, I would have never in my wildest dreams have imagined this growing up. I've never in my wildest dreams imagined this when I started with the Astros. Robert, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. And that was Houston Astros radio voice, Robert Ford. Holy cow, guys. That was a, that was a, a, a tremendous interview. And and just the, the background, Robert's background, so many different things. And and you kind of see how small of a world we, we truly live in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, his stories about how he would take his tape recorders to the stadium and do the play by play on his own were, I mean, that's something that that kids would do. Right. I mean, that's that's what you dream of doing when you get into uh, or want to be in that business and do the professional play by play stuff. And his story about 9-11 just I mean, that sent shivers down my spine because I remember every single detail that day, you know, and I will for for the rest of time. Yeah, I mean, growing up with Kevin, Kevin and I growing up down in that area, you know, I, I it's just something that every time I talk about it, I get I get you know goosebumps and and, and shivers. Um, but you know, just Robert speaking about from you know 
his winning the broadcaster of the year to diversity in baseball to his love of baseball growing up from his grandparents and his and his father and his music father's music career, the, just mm. the background in general like kevin said is is simply you know amazing yeah and, and the fact that that he did football games for wzzz in fulton <laughs> which i lived in fulton for a couple <laughs> of years my wife is from fulton so it's like you know, you, you never know, you know, you never know. Shout out to what, Peter Hun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, all I can remember is the joke that we had. It was a running joke at, at WTOP. W Z Z Z Z Z. <laughs> and I, I think the, the, the legend goes that, that professor Hun wanted ZZZ because it would be the last, yep. the absolute last radio station <laughs> right. listed in, in the directory. And that would make it easy to find. <laughs> uh, Isn't it funny how like two totally different universities in the same area have a same, like a, like a link, like a tie to that, just one silly radio station. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. No, ab absolutely. Well, that will do it for this is what is this? Do we do we call it episode four A or do we call it episode part, five? Part two of four. Part two of episode four. Four yeah. dot two. We'll four dot two. Four, sure. We're four dot two. <laughs> I would just say part two of episode four. There you go. All, all right. You so be it. <laughs> call it part two of episode four. Uh that thank you so much uh for, for listening. Uh, we had a blast. We thank again, cannot thank Robert enough for, for taking the time to, to chat with us and we will talk again in a couple of weeks or hint, hint, hint. We might have a bit of a, I don't know, special episode next week. Just keep that between you and you and I don't, don't tell anyone else, but, uh, there, there might be. Uh, a special episode next week because hey the more throwing bagels the merrier right absolutely gotta love throwing bagels as long as there's no penalties involved no nope, no penalties all right see you later bye <laughs>